Welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we do encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee, and for this end-of-the-year podcast, Dr. Gutstein talks about going into the future and dynamic intelligence. So let's talk about dynamic intelligence. So, you know, if you think about the 21st century, okay, well, let's talk about the 20th century for a second and the centuries before, um, before we had computers, before automation and robots and, uh, and all those wonderful technological advances. It used to be that things like um, possessing specialized knowledge was very valuable. Like if you knew the secrets of your guild, your profession, you know, those weren't shared in the old days because those gave you the special talents and abilities that allow you to rise up, right? And the other thing was if you knew how to do um, procedural thinking, right? Complex procedural thinking. If you were someone who could be very highly paid because you had sort of the ability to construct sort of flowcharts in your head, you know, or even on paper, and you could do that type of very complex conditional, if this happens, I need to do this, if this happens, I need to do this. You know, we shared that with other people and how you did it. But that type of analytic thinking was also very valued, right? Um, and again, if you had certain textbooks where, you know, you had your procedures in there and you had special content in there, uh, remember pre-Google, <laughs> those days, you were very valued, right? Yeah, exactly. If you think about all these all these people and professions, even into the 20th, 20th century, people who did bookkeeping, people who were in secretarial professions, people who were in crafts positions, people who were driving cars. We didn't have autonomous driving cars, <laughs> right? No. Um, but, but I want you to think about that and think about how that for centuries and centuries, that type of what we call traditional intelligence, which is what IQ was set up to measure. Remember, Binet, back in France, in the end of the 19th century, developed this test, which all the other tests have been based on, because they wanted to distinguish who they should move on, who they should promote into you know, high school, basically, and then maybe further on, uh, versus you know, who had the potential. And that potential was based on what was valued at that time, the ability to retain information, the ability to hold on to things, you know, to, to rearrange things, to sequentially analyze things and construct things, right? Those are the types of abilities, rote memory, procedural memory, what we call semantic memory. All those things were the valued things, right, in the world at those times, right? Um, but what we see ourselves facing now and is very different, isn't it? And it's especially problematic for people with autism, right, who are on the edge. You know, if you think about autism, autism is can be defined at this, this day and age, at least we finally got to the point where we define it as pe- people who have the potential to develop that type of traditional intelligence, but are really impaired in the development of a different type of intelligence. So we find ourselves today, and if you think about children today, what are they facing? What are, what's the employment world they're facing? What they're facing? Right, one where the content you have is, is irrelevant. Its content is available to you. And as easy as it is now to get things, you think about Google searches, in 10 years, you're just going to have to talk to you, your device and say, me and all the information on this. Go collect research on this. And, and your assistant will come back and give it to you. Yeah. This is in children's lifetimes now. Yeah. This is not just somewhere in science fiction. Yeah. 
right? right? You're going to have, you know, they won't be truck drivers. <laughs> It'll be autonomous trucks. There won't be taxi drivers. There won't be Uber drivers, right? It'll be, it'll be autonomous. It'll be done. There won't be bookkeepers. There won't be administrative assistants. Um, a lot of, um, uh, um, very uh, procedural medicine is going to be done by robots. In fact, there's, there's already starting, and it's going to be more. It's going to be robotic surgery. Yes, it'll be overseen by people, but it'll be less in- person intensive, right? A lot of sort of middle level technician jobs are going to be phased out, right? A lot of customer service jobs are going to be phased out. Um, things that even now we, we see a lot of in terms of employment, we're at the cusp of those things in the next 20 years of losing those things, unless labor becomes so cheap that it's cheaper than those computerized solutions, which is only for a certain period of time. And it only means that labor is going to get more and more devalued if you're on that end of it, right? So if you think about where we're headed, right, and I can give you a lot more examples, whether it's being a farmer, you know, it's going to affect every aspect mm-hmm. of our lives. And it, what it means is to be able to succeed in that environment that children are now you know, being born to and raised in. Um, those traditional things that were measured by IQ tests are going to be extremely devalued. Now, they're not going to be completely devalued. If you can't do those some of those things, you're going to be in trouble. They're still going to be necessary, but they're no longer going to be sufficient for anything. So anything that, you know, the, the drive to, like, raise IQ points is going to really be meaningless. It already is meaningless, frankly. And it's getting more, I mean, it's just getting better at those types of skills. Only if you have a certain minimum amount of those types of skills, then really you don't need much more of that because that's not where the society is moving, right? That's not where we're going, right? So what you're going to see is a division in society. We're already seeing it, right? We're seeing that there's a group of people who are able to face these challenges, who are feeling confident in them, who are thriving in all the different challenges and changes, who are seeing opportunities, um, who are lear- learning from the past, right, and adapting um, or persevering. And then we're seeing a large group of people who are giving up, who are feeling fear and dread and anger, who are feeling, um, who are avoiding reflection, don't want to reflect, don't want to think about it. They want to close off. And they assume what we might call a bunker mentality, right? So we're seeing that division. And those people are not going to do well, that latter group of people. We already know that. Um, so what is dynamic intelligence, right? Okay. Dynamic intelligence is this other group of abilities that is based on what I call our experience management system. Our, our ability to use our personal experience and shared experience in a way that provides mastery for us. And what's interesting about this, this if you think about the, what I call the EMS, experience management system, is it's also the, the thing that has evolved in our brains the latest evolutionary development of our brains, okay? And it developed over the last uh, maybe hundred thousands of years where it allowed Homo sapiens basically to have enormous advantages in the world that was at the time, during certain periods of time, were going through environmentally a lot of upheavals, a lot of volatility in terms of ice ages, heat, and 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 environmental changes that were going on. And, then, and also, during the period of time, there was a lot of competition between humanoid species, really. <laughs> you know, Neanderthals, homo sapiens, other species as well. 
um, and allowed us to basically come out on top, allowed us to basically thrive, right, where other species couldn't. Now, when you think about traditional intelligence, all those abilities, other species have that, but to a limited degree. They don't have as much of it. They have much less of it. But what's interesting about humans or our species is that we're talking about the, our experience management system I'll describe in a minute. That's something that's qualitatively different than other species. Yes, there may be others that can do that, but it's very, very different the way we are able to use um, our intelligence, our dynamic intelligence. And let me just talk about what that means. Let me give you some examples of that, okay? Um, okay. Um, so, okay. What's the, the advantages of being able to make sense of your own experience, to represent it? Um, and also, think about what is experience? What do we mean by experience? Well, for human beings, we have to talk about it in, in a number of different ways. First of all, we have our own personal experience, right? How the world, how we interpret what's going on in the world, right? Um, how we interpret our own internal experience. And then we have the ability to share experiences with others, right? To benefit from them, to collaborate and share experiences, to co-construct. We'll get into constructing experiences in a second. But we have our personal experiences, then we have our shared experiences. We have our internal experience in any moment, right? What are we feeling? What's our body doing? Um, what, are, what is our mental state? Right? Is it alert? Is it, you know, uh, unattentive? Is it? Excited? Is it bored? Is it, right? Are we, where are we in our mental states? We have our own internal experience. And then we have our experience of what's going on around us, including other people and what's happening in our environment, right? Then we have, right, the ability to move in time, right? So we have what we call mental time travel. So the ability to move into, to re-experience our past, right? We call that remembering but it's not memory in terms of rote memory, right? It's a reconstruction or a simulation of elements of what we experienced in the past that we've decided to often unconsciously save and to organize. But we can call upon that, whether individually or in joint reminiscing and share that, right? And we have the incredible ability to use that prior experience along with our imagination to project into potential futures. So we have the ability of all species, we don't know of any other species, that can look into multiple futures, which is really an advantage, right? Looking into one future gives you almost nothing because the only way you can the only way that has any value is if you're going to expect that the past and the future are going to be the same. So what happened there? I can use my past and say it's going to happen there. Well sometimes that's great. But in any kind of complex dynamic environment, you're really screwed if that's what you do because the future is not likely to turn out exactly like the past. To some degree, yes, but you have to be able to understand that there's divergence points where the future, there's futures, right? And, you know, if you look at quantum theory, you can say, well, there's an infinite number of futures, but, but that doesn't have any value. What has value is realizing that from your experience that there are several that are probably most likely. And if you can figure that out from your past and say, well, you know, based on experiences, you know, this, there could be anything, right? But most likely it's going to either be this, this, or this. Then you can plan scenarios. Then you can create simulations. And then you can play them out, right? Get ready for them. Test out different things you could do with them. 
always being aware that, you know, it's likely that another scenario might emerge, right? Which, which is a bit different, but it, by and large, most of the time that's going to be extremely useful for you. So we can engage in mental time travel. The other thing we can do in the past is we, there's two other things. One is we can extract knowledge about ourselves from the past, not just knowledge that we call generic or cultural knowledge, things you get in books, things that people tell you or teach you, but from our own experience, we can say, well, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about how I should do something differently in the future, given my own strengths, my own limitations, my own needs, right? So we can develop personal knowledge. We can also right, try to make sense of experiences. We can reflect and say, well, why did it happen that way? That's surprising, or that didn't work out. What was that about? And we can sit and reflect on that prior experience. We can go what we call offline. Might not be always online. Remember, other species, we think they're just basically online all the time, dealing with the world, or they're asleep. We can go offline. We can say, uh, I'm tuning out what's happening around me right now, mostly, I keep vigilance, but right? And um, I'm not going to right deal with the present and i'm just going to reflect on the past we go offline right which is by the way a default state for human beings what neuroscientists found is that when they stop giving people tasks you know um traditional tasks to do in their scanners right in, in their brain scanners and they just stop that for moments and periods of time in between their little tests that they were giving what they found was that human human beings defaulted to a state where they looked into their past and their future and their imagination and they became more creative during those times when initially scientists thought they were just resting from the tasks they were going to get. And they, and they created this term called the default network, which was, you know, it's pretty ill time. But what it does mean is that human beings by nature, our species by nature, when we are not having to deal with traditional types of tasks, Right, you know, getting 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 the garbage taken out, studying a book for the test. We don't just a brain is not empty. Our brain is very active, but it's active in a more imaginative, creative, past and future experiential way. It goes offline from dealing with the immediacy of the environment, but it goes online in terms of being very very active in in these areas, these other areas of experiencing. So we have this online and offline experience, and we can go back and forth. Right? Between those. So it gives us the ability to do that. It gives us the ability to imagine, right? Experiences that can never occur and never have occurred and never will occur. We can create whole worlds like Tolkien did with The Hobbit, right? Or many, many authors do, or many do, right? Where these things are never going to happen, but they serve as sort of, um, metaphors, if you will, right? To help us to think about our species, ourselves, in relationship to them. We're also able to move from being very present, very aware in our experience of now, what's happening in our bodies, to taking, to being more distant, to taking a step back. That's what we've been going offline. We can take a step, we can face a problem and get very frustrated about it and very upset and experience that, uh, I can't, I can't figure it out. It's a problem. It's an obstacle. And then we can say, you know what? I need to take a step back. I need to look at this in a bigger perspective. You know, is this really so important or, you know, I need to stop getting so upset about this so I can think about it. Or I need to take a break, right? We can, we can distance. We can go from being very present to being a little bit more distant, right? As we need to. And so that's another thing we can do 
with our experience, right? We can engage in inner subjectivity. We can try to stimulate what another person might be experiencing, either in relationship to us or away from us, right? And think about what empathy means, what theory of mind is, what perspective taking is. They're all three basically the same thing. They're all based on the ability to try to simulate other people's experiences, whether it's their feelings, whether it's their intentions, whether it's their mental state, right? Um, it's all about being able to use our experience, our own experience, but to infer and simulate what other people might be experiencing, right? So all of those things are part of the experience management system. Now, what neuroscientists found, as I, I sort of hinted to a couple of minutes ago, was that there is a, neuro, a, a neurological equivalent of our experience management system called the experience management network. That's actually equivalent of what I've been talking about on a mental level, right? That allows us, that gives us the ability to function in this way. And that's a very dynamic system. So it's composed of three networks. And if you don't study neuroscience, they won't mean much to you. The executive control network, the default network, which is that original discovery, and what we call the salience network, right? And um, so these three networks can operate separately and they can operate together. And they can also operate in conjunction with a more traditional intelligence network, I call that, the, they call it the task, the neuroscientists use the term task positive network. I call it the task management network, which is, uh, you know, it's just, just another way to talk about more traditional intelligence. So it can function with those or without those. Uh, it can function in a much more effortless sort of creative way when you do mind wandering, or it can be in a more focused one. We're using creativity and imagination, or you're using future projection to actually help create a plan and prepare for something, right? So neuroscientists have found, hey, guess what? That type of functioning is, you know, they've become very excited about it. In fact, the initial paper looking at that was only published in 2007, right? So you think about it, it's just been the last 10 years where we've understand the sort of tripartite or triple network, which is so critical and so powerful and by the way, also so impaired in autism. If you look at the research on the one, the one research area where we've really found significant differences is in that function of that tripartite network. And specifically, you know, in how it integrates together. And not only just how it works together, but what we, what neuroscientists have begun to realize, um, is that our brain is an incredibly complex dynamic organ it is able to operate in, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in many different ways. So if you think about something like I said, the default network, and by the way, these networks are not um, physically adjacent to one another. They're functional networks. They're areas of the brain that are activated at the same time for certain tasks, certain functions, right? So they're basically a, a large uh, number or several different sort of scattered different areas of the, of the cerebral cortex and also some sort cortical connections, but they're richly connected to one another uh, in typical development and intra-connected as well. But we found that even those networks have sub-areas that have certain different functions and can team up and form momentary co uh, coalitions with other sub-networks of other networks. 
So we can form moment to moment, we can form different little coalitions of these areas for different functions, different tasks, and our brain does that. They develop what we call brain states. And we can move from one to the other to the other to the other if we have the repertoire, if we've developed that repertoire of brain states, which occurs um, over periods of years and years and years. We're not born with those. Those are things that are very sophisticated that really have years and years to, take years and years to develop that level of, of flexibility and agility. So, uh, but it allows us to, to adapt to all kinds of situations and to develop throughout our lives new coalitions, new formations of brain states based on the situations that we're having to deal with in our lives. Right? It's an amazing thing. Right? So, if we think about dynamic intelligence and the term dynamic intelligence, right, it's that it's the ability to function in a, in a complex dynamic environments and dynamic systems. Um, by the way, the, the neurologists use the term dynamic functional connectivity, so they really got to the dynamic first. I'm just taking that, moving into the intelligence, which is, you know, the type of intelligence that we are developing based on that dynamic functional connectivity of the experience management network. Um, and so the, the, the educators are starting to think about this. I don't know what terms they're using. Um, experience-based learning, I think they're talking about. Um, and they are starting to look at the neuroscience more to, to help, you know, think about what education should be, you know, whether, you know, how much that's being done is, is another question. But, um, that's, hopefully that gives you a real sense of how amazing dynamic intelligence is. And the thing about it is, is that it's something that we've, until very recently taken for granted, or just something that happens. So think about intuitive judgment. Think about how you make a judgment. I'll give you another example. There's so many of you're trying to hang a painting or a picture on your wall. How do you judge when it's straight enough? Right? How? What do you, you do? Based on the context, if you were an art curator in a museum, you'd probably be very precise about it. If you're just hanging it up in, you know, in a college kid in the dorm room, you're not going to be. Uh, you don't need to be, right? It's, you, your judgments are based on the context, and we make that so effortless. We don't even think about that, right? Um, and there's a million examples like that, about using our intuitive judgment. Again, that is based on that experience management system. It's based on our prior experience and our ability to, to develop this type of situational matching that immediately allows us to then move into this context and match it up with prior context and then develop our responses, our judgments based on that, as well though as looking at what's novel and what's different in the current situation. We're able to do both of those, right? So this recent evolutionary advance, and I say recent over the last couple hundred thousand years, is what allows us to, it allows really homo sapiens to have thrived, um, but it's been hidden, sort of hidden away. It's never been, we don't educate it. We don't try to develop it. We just sort of take it for granted. And I think one of the crises we face right now as a, as a species, by the way, if we're going to survive, thrive, is whether we're going to make, we're going to acknowledge it and put it at the forefront. And there's a lot of debate about that. Now, when we look at autism, it's not even a question of that because what we see with autism is those are exactly, if, you, if you've been listening to what I've been saying, those are exactly the impairments that researchers have found with people in autism, that if they can take, um, and one of the reasons that researchers have been so confused is they tend to take these dynamic um, uh, tasks, if you will, or, or, or situations, and put them in a laboratory and make them static. So they take something like theory of mind, 
which is about moments and moments of inner subjectivity and thinking about, you know, as you're moving along, as you're having a conversation, as you're being with someone, how you might stop and consider what they're thinking and what they're feeling or, or take their perspective or whatever. And they turned it into something like a salient test. They turned it into a static test. And, get, and lo and behold, a lot of people with autism could do it <laughs> because they were able to use their traditional skills, their IQ skills, which were not impaired, to be able to solve the problem. But then they looked in real life, right? Nothing. They couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it at all. Right? So for years, unfortunately, researchers have muddied that process up because they don't like to observe. They like to put things in a lab. They're just a they're addicted to lab. They're not like Piaget. Remember, you know, Piaget developed his entire um, theory by watching his kids grow up. Right, and the most probably the most powerful influence of all. Um, and by the way, Vygotsky did the same. He didn't do. He didn't run lab experiments. So two people, maybe Jerome Bruner could be a third. You think about the people who have made the most, who have had the most influence on our developmental psychology, our understanding of development. They didn't do lab experiments. Unfortunately, we've now trained generations of people. That's all they do, whether that's – and in autism, it's even worse. So they take people with autism, and they don't want to observe them in the world. They want to test them in these little rigid environments. And then, of course, in the last – of course, in the last few years, they finally realized, oh, we have to throw all that out because what we're doing is testing the things that people with autism can do, Right? And no wonder we're getting, you know, this researcher comes up with this result, and this one comes up with this result. And there's now finally in the last couple of years been somewhat of a, a beginnings of a backlash of saying, wait a minute, we have to look at the real world. We have to start looking. Research doesn't mean putting somebody in a lab. In fact, it distorts everything. You have to, research means you go out in the world and you see what's happening and then you try to understand it. And you observe and you find regularities and then you can test those out and see if it's true over different people in different situations. But you don't screw up, you know, your evidence base can't be based on artificial situations, right? Uh, because you won't see what's going on. But anyway, the research that has done that is very clear that the deficits in mental time travel, the differences in self-experiencing your own feelings, experiencing inner subjectivity, as we all know, major deficits in autism, right? Everything fits with the impaired, and also the neuroscience, which is so powerful, is a perfect fit with the failure of development of the experience management system, whether that's psychologically, you know, that's the same thing, right? It's just, a, you know, whether you see it in a psychological sphere or in a, in a scanner, you're seeing the same thing, right? You're just seeing the equivalent of that, right? And so what what's fascinating about that, okay, is that that gives us an enormous, if we can understand that, right, if we can put that together, it gives us an enormous place to think about how to intervene, right? We have to develop and remediate that impairment. And then we have to ask the question is, why is that impaired? And it's not that hard to answer why is that impaired, because what we know from studying infants and toddlers who go on to have autism is that by the time they're in 18 months of age, they're not able to actively participate in what I call a mind-guiding relationship and the type of relationship where parents get to guide the development of their mind, right? And we know from our research, which has been done, that that relationship, even though people use different terms to talk about it, it's the same thing, is where things like theory of mind come from and their subjectivity. 
It's where time travel comes from. It's the source, that type of experience-based learning with a, a, a mindful guide, if you will, who's helping to develop your mind, is the source of those abilities. It's how we develop our experience management system through those experiential learning, not through instruction, not through accumulation, right? Not through repetition, right? Yes, you have to have mastery, but mastery does not mean rote stuff or repetition of true things. So the brain of it, we, we also know that through those early, through those experiences of mind dying, the brain develops as well. We have studies now that show how critical that is for neural development. Okay, so you can see why dynamic intelligence then becomes such a critical thing for us to be talking about and thinking about because it gets to really the essence, not just of autism, but really of us of our human species, I think. And thanks for joining us for ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee. See you next time.